Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12, if you would. Last week, we uh, saw Jesus confront the religious leaders of his day with a parable. And in this story, he basically said to them, God is going to destroy you, and he's going to give the vineyard of his kingdom to new tenants. They rejected Jesus, these leadership people did, and and most of Israel did as well. And they wouldn't do exactly what Jesus in the story said they would do. They would murder the son. But Jesus went on to say, and promise, if you would, almost like a prophecy, he said, but uh, God's going to start a new kingdom. And this new kingdom, and with these new people, this new nation, it'll be made up of people from every people group around the world, and I am going to be the cornerstone of that, uh, of that new kingdom. You may remember that didn't sit well with the folks that he was speaking to, but they were scared of the crowd. They didn't want to upset the crowd, and so they, uh, they left. I, I suggested they probably left pretty angry, but they didn't leave Jesus alone after that. They left that day, but they would come back. And Mark, as he continues in his biography, he highlights some attempts by these men to snare Jesus in the days ahead, to trap him. Uh, they were hoping that he would say things that would either turn the crowd against him or maybe get him in trouble with uh, Rome. And so this morning what we want to do is we want to look at three such exchanges and we want to see what we can learn and what we can apply from these these confrontations with these men. It's interesting how their hatred of Jesus would bring together two groups of people in particular that really despise one another. They actually had nothing in common. But in verse 13 it says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians were really strange bedfellows, even as it even as it relates to just going against Jesus. The Pharisees were committed to Israel. The Herodians were committed to Rome. The Pharisees were extreme right wingers. The Herodians were extreme left wingers. The Pharisees represented resistance to Rome. Herodians accommodated Rome. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he disrupted their religious agenda. The Herodians hated Jesus because he threatened their political arrangement. The Pharisees were intensely religious. The Herodians were intensely political. These two groups really had two very different worldviews, but they came together against Jesus. And so they came, and this is their first attempt together to trap Jesus, to snare him in what he said, what he would say. So verse 14, when they came, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful. We don't care what anyone thinks, nor... Uh, You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought a coin whose whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. 
Well, they start with flattery. They say, hey, we know you don't show partiality. We know you always speak truthfully. And, and I think what they're hoping to do by that is sort of box Jesus in so that he has to answer them. And the snare is simply this. Should we pay taxes or not? That's the snare because here's what they're thinking. If Jesus says we shouldn't pay taxes, well, then Rome is going to be on his case. If he does say we should pay taxes, then the people are going to turn against him. So either way, they think they've won this. But, but our king is brilliant. He's awesome. He asks for a coin. When they show him the coin, he asks them, he says, whose inscription, whose picture is on this coin? And of course, it was Caesar's. And uh, so what he says to them, and again, they're amazed. He, he, he does not trap them. He says to them, hey, give to Caesar what Caesar's. But then he adds, but give to God what's God's. And, uh, and Jesus answered to them. He escapes the snare, if you would. But he also teaches us some things. Here's some things I think we need to know. Jesus is acknowledging that there are two kingdoms that we have to relate to. The kingdoms of this world, exemplified by Caesar, and the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus is making it clear to them and to us today that we need to be careful. These kingdoms should never be equated because the kingdoms of men are not the kingdoms of God. And the second thing he tells us is that we owe each of these realms, we owe them something. We owe these two kingdoms something. And so he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar. So I thought we'd start there for just a few moments and talk about what is it that we owe the kingdom of Caesar. So Jesus doesn't tell us. He simply says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the rest of the, God, the, rest of the word of God informs, I think, what Jesus says. And so from the scriptures, we know of at least four things we owe this kingdom, the kingdom of, of Caesar that we live under. We, we owe them at least four things. Number one, we owe them respect and honor. In Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Paul says, and the context is government, he says, show respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you honor. Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we owe at least at some level respect and honor to our Caesar, to our civil government. And I would suggest that this includes not just governments that are good, but governments that we think are wrong or governments that we think are, are evil. We owe them at least at some level a degree of respect uh, and honor because they are part of the authority structure that God has set up. And I think the, the scriptures are filled with examples for us of this. For instance, we have uh, Joseph in prison, falsely imprisoned by, uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but uh, help me out. Pontifer, thank you. Pontifer, and uh, he, um, he's falsely imprisoned, but he shows respect to Pharaoh. He shows respect to the guards that, that he's under. Daniel and his three friends show respect to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. David blesses and prays for King Saul. So, so here's three examples of governments that have been against God's people, but yet the, the men of God show respect at some level uh, to them. It's kind of hard for me to understand why God would want us to do that, especially if we're under an evil government. And I'm not implying our government. Well, let's, let's take uh, Afghanistan, for instance, or let's take communist China and how they treat our brothers and sisters. It's hard for me to picture why do we have to show respect and honor, at least at some level, to them. But yet I believe that's what God calls us to because God is the one who's given us 
authority. He's the one who set up authority structures in our world. The family first, civil government, the church, civil government. He has established these realms of authority. The second thing we owe them is submission. Back to that Romans passage, but here in a little bit more detail in chapter 13, verse 1, Paul writes, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad But you want to be unafraid of one in authority. Do you want to be unafraid of one in authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval for for it. That would be civil government is God's servant for your good. God created civil government for our good. The government isn't against us. The government is supposed to help us. And one of the things that we owe Caesar is we owe him submission. We owe our civil government a degree of obedience and, and submission. We may not like all the laws that government has enacted, but we are responsible to submit to them and to refuse to submit to them is to resist God's established authority. Now, this is really hard because what happens when our government or or our Caesar is asking us to violate things that God has told us not to do, right? Well, then we're going to have a conflict. And I believe this is what Jesus means when he says, and we'll come to this in just a moment. But when he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, you owe them a degree of obedience. When he says, give to God what is God's, we owe to God our ultimate obedience. And so when there's a conflict, we will need to obey the Lord. You know, uh, I want to talk about this submission to authority for just a second. Um, There is a documentary, they call it a documentary out there on one of the streaming services, which uh, seeks to highlight uh, some things in in our Christian past that maybe weren't all right. I'm talking about a documentary against the Duggars and against uh, IBLP, the Institute of Basic Life Principles. Now, if you watch this, you're going to find out, you're going to find that it highlights some of the things that were wrong uh, with the Duggar family and maybe with IBLP. But the thing that I want you to note, if you watch this documentary, is it is trying to say that our principle of submission to authority is always wrong. That it goes against our, it goes against our individual freedoms and our, you know, the thing in our world today that everybody has the right to exercise their own opinions. That, that really is a piece that's trying to say that such a principle is wrong. I don't think it is wrong. I think God has given us a principle of authority and we are to be submissive to the authority that is over us as much and as often as we can as long as we recognize that our ultimate authority is God and we need to submit to him. We owe them taxes. Here's the third thing we owe them. The point, uh, the point of this whole exchange is, should we pay taxes? And Jesus' answer is, yeah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And his answer is, yes, you should, you should pay taxes to whom taxes are due. In fact, again, that Romans passage, Paul writes, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes and tolls to those you owe tolls. No one likes to pay taxes. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that all government tax is just there's a lot of unfair taxation and there's a lot of wars that have been started over unfair taxation. But I'm telling you, God expects us to pay taxes and there is a benefit to taxation. 
When you pull out of here, you're not going to be driving on gravel roads or you're going to be driving on paved roads that are paved and, and upkept by our taxes. So there are benefits, infrastructure benefits to our taxation, but we owe to civil government taxes. And the fourth thing that we owe them, and, and I would suggest that maybe this fourth one is the most important and maybe the least done, but here's the fourth thing we owe civil government. We owe them the support of our prayers. Paul would write to, uh, to Timothy in chapter 2. I don't remember if it's 1st or 2nd Timothy. They didn't write it down. There, I think it's 1st Timothy. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We owe it to pray for Caesar. We need to be praying for our civil governments and those who are in authority over us. That's what we owe to Caesar. What do we render to God? Well, I think it's the same thing, if you would, but just a whole lot. He's at the pinnacle of it. So we owe God our greatest respect and honor. God's will, God's honor, God's name, that needs to be at the pinnacle of what we honor and what we respect. That's what we owe the Lord. And his, our respect and honor of him trumps any respect or loyalty we have to anyone else. He comes first. Number two, we render to God the greatest and first love of our heart. And I'm going to come back to this a little bit more in the third snare, if you would. But, but let me just mention it here. We, lo- we owe God to love him with all of our being with all of our minds, with all of our will, with all of our, with all of our thinking, that would be our minds, all of our strength. We, we owe him the greatest affection of our life. And the third thing we owe him is our complete obedience. I mean, I wish I could say this morning to all of us that obeying God is, it comes really easy to all of us all the time. But that's simply not true, is it? We, we struggle with a heart that wants to always obey the Lord. We, we struggle with that. At times we want what we want and we want to do what we want and we want to indulge in what we want and, and, and we struggle with giving our obedience to God. But that's what we owe God, the absolute obedience of our life to his desires and to his heart. And, uh, and, you know, back to Caesar here, when Caesar, I already mentioned this, but when Caesar is asking us to do something that is in conflict with what we know God wants us to do, our obedience to God always trumps our obedience to Caesar. Our, our honor of God always trumps our honor of Caesar. But we need to obey him. None. We need to obey the Lord. All our earthly loyalties uh, to whoever is our Caesar, they abide under our greatest loyalty to Jesus. I read this this week. Did you ever realize this, that Jesus asked Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector to be in his group of men? Two men whose, whose worldview and, and what they believed was important were diametrically opposed. Matthew is giving himself to Rome, if you would, serving under Rome. Simon is doing everything he can to fight against Rome. And Jesus brings them two together. And Matthew is the only one that points this out. And I think Matthew pointed that out because he was trying to say to the, say to all of us this, that our loyalty to Jesus transcends whatever our political loyalties might be. 
Whatever we are politically, man, they they need to be brought under our loyalty uh, to the Lord Jesus. And that's why we can find community together, because Jesus is our highest loyalty. So let's move on to the next test or the next snare. It's in verse 18. Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they questioned him. The next test test comes from the Sadducees. And I'll be honest, I have tried for many years to understand their worldview. And and even this morning, I I still struggle with understanding the the Sadducees' worldview. Uh, No one knows exactly how the Sadducees came into being. And there's a couple of speculations out there, but no one really knows. But by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, here's what's true of the Sadducees. They are the aristocrats of Israel. They are the aristocratic class, and they are connected with everything that was involving the temple. They tended to be extremely wealthy, and and they were very powerful, and they held all the or most of the powerful positions uh, in Israel at the time. They that included the chief priests and the high priests. They had a majority of the seats on the Sanhedrin. Of the seventy seats, they were a majority. They believed that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the creator of all things, and they believed that God had called Abraham and called Moses, and that God had given us the first five books of the Bible as to how were to live. That's what they that's what they affirmed, that's what they believed. But here's what they rejected. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They only believed the first 5 books of the Old Testament were from God. Everything else was not. They also rejected all the Pharisees extra biblical writings. Remember, we, we've seen Jesus often in the book of Matthew, Mark confront uh, the traditions of the elders. Remember that? And so uh, they rejected all of that. They didn't believe there were such things as angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe there was any spirit world except for God. Um, they, um, they didn't believe that you were a spirit living in a body. They thought the person perished at death. They didn't believe you continued to live uh, after you died. And so they die, they denied any judgment to come. They didn't believe in any future resurrection. So here, here's trying to understand them. I guess they served the Lord because they believed that if I served God, it would make me rich and powerful in this life because that's who they were, the rich and the powerful. And so evidently they, they served God because he would make them rich and powerful now. So they were really scared of Jesus, the Sadducees, because they were afraid that he was going to ruin their good thing with Rome. They remind, they remind me of, of modern day theological liberals who deny most of the scripture and deny most of the things that Jesus taught, especially anything related to the supernatural. They sort of remind me uh, of them. I've never quite understood why liberals want to follow Jesus when they deny so much of what he taught. Same thing's true with the Sadducees. Why do they want to follow Yahweh when they deny most everything that the Old Testament teaches about him? The Pharisees, on the other hand, were very, very different. The Pharisees would be more like us evangelicals, right? They believed in the spiritual world. They believed in the future resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They believed in all of the Old Testament, much like we believe in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Um, Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees spent a lot of time speculating about 
What was going to happen in the future? What was going to happen at the resurrection? So they added all kinds of oral traditions and extra biblical writings to their system systems of belief, the, the writings the, of the elders, the things we've talked about, remember? Which Jesus often challenged those things. The Pharisees would get into great discussions of what it would look like at the resurrection. So they would argue over whether people, when they rise from the dead, would they rise with clothes on or would they rise naked? They argued that if they rose with clothes on, would they be the same clothes that they were buried in, or would they rise with other clothes, okay? They discussed ideas like, if you were born without a hand, would you rise from the dead without a hand? And they speculated that if you had a mole on your arm, you'd have the mole on your arm when you rose from the dead. In fact, their general consensus was, however you died is how you would rise in the resurrection. However you were buried, that's how you would rise in the resurrection. They assumed that relationships carried over into the, res- into the resurrection as well. So they, would, they taught if you married someone in this life, they believed you'd be married to that same person in the future kingdom forever. Uh, now remember, the Bible doesn't teach any of this. The Old Testament does not teach any of this. This is all the Pharisees speculating. But what happened is what we've learned. Their speculations turned into divine truth. And so they equated their speculations with all uh, of the Old Testament, all the things that God had revealed. And, and here's where the, the problem lies. The Bible did not teach these things. So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they come to Jesus with a question about the the Leverite marriage commands in the book of Deuteronomy. So in the book of Deuteronomy, we have the Leverite marriage. And the Leverite marriage said this, "If, if if a brother dies without leaving a child, he's married, then his brother will marry his wife, and the first child that they would have would be raised in his deceased brother's name so that that child would inherit whatever that that father that died and didn't have a child, whatever he, whatever was his lot, that son would get that part. So that was the Leverite marriage. And that was taught in Deuteronomy 25, which is one of the first five books of the Bible. So the Sadducees believed in this. They believed that this is what you would, sh- should do, right? This was very important because when land, when you wanted to keep your land in the family, it was so discouraged for a widow to marry outside the family so that the land would stay within the family. So here's the question that they seek to trap Jesus with. So the Sadducees come to Jesus, and this is the question, verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind with no child, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. And this is, this is a make-believe story, I'm pretty certain. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, none of the seven left an offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? So that's the question that they bring to Jesus. Now, my first thought would be, wow, why did that fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh brother marry her, right? Because uh, 
Yeah, it seemed like a dangerous thing to marry that woman, right? But anyway, uh-uh. now if the Sadducees were answering their own question, they would have said, they would have said, well, she's not going to be anybody's wife because there is no resurrection. There is no life after death at all. There is no resurrection, so she's not going to be anybody's wife. They're all, they're all dead. That's how they would have answered that question. But remember, the Pharisees have all kinds of stuff, and so uh, all kinds of speculations about the future. And of course, they believed in the resurrection and all. And, And so here's the trap. Because they know that Jesus believes in the resurrection, because they know that Jesus more aligns himself with Pharisees theologically, they come and they ask him a question that they think he's not going to be able to answer, and that when he can't answer it, he's going to show his ignorance to his followers, and this is just Jimmy's speculation, and I'm assuming they thought he'd show his ignorance to his followers, and maybe they hoped that his followers would think, well, Jesus is just ignorant, and, and maybe they would stop following him. That's what they hoped to ridicule Jesus with their question. But Jesus is not stumped. And here's what he says to them. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so for the dead being raised, as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Man, no mincing words here. Jesus comes right out at him and he says, you are wrong. And the reason you're wrong is because you don't know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And then he takes them in reverse order and he deals with the power of God first. And he says, you don't know the power of God because you don't believe there will be a resurrection and you don't believe God created angels. Jesus says the power of God will indeed raise men from the dead. It will be just like we believe. He says, however, your question is off base because there is no marriage as we know it in the resurrection. And then he says, and this is kind of Jimmy's paraphrase, and by the way, Sadducees, God created angels because we're going to be just like them in the new kingdom in the resurrection. The implication being that angels don't marry and don't procreate. Jesus doesn't say we will be angels. In Psalm 8, it says we created what? A little lower than the angels, right? We're, we're not angels, everyone. I, you know, I hear it all the time when someone passes. God just needed another angel. No, God doesn't. If God wants more angels, he'll create them. We are not turning into angels, okay? Everybody got that? And then he says, and you don't know your scripture either because the scripture you hold to, the first five books of the Bible, remember that's all they believed, he points them to an episode that takes place in the first five books of the Bible. And he says, as for the dead being raised, listen, you don't know the word of God because the word of God says in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when Moses meets God uh, by the burning bush, God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If they are dead and never to rise again, then why does God call them the God of the living? 
God calls them the God of the living because they will indeed one day rise from the dead. And then Jesus says, you are badly mistaken. I love that. You are, you're not just mistaken. You guys are badly mistaken about what you believe. So let me distill down what we learned from Jesus, and then I want to make two comments. The, the, the first thing I want you to notice that Jesus teaches us is that there truly is a spirit realm with angels. I mean, I, I don't, we don't know all that much about the spirit realm, but we do know that there are angels and there are angels that have rebelled against God. There are, there are, I, I, we, we speculate that that's what demons are, but there is a, a realm outside the realm that we exist in. We exist in a material universe that God created, but outside of this, there's a spirit realm. Now, exactly how the spirit realm and our physical realm work together, I, I've, I've often thought or speculated that maybe the spirit realm is just all around us and we just can't see it because it's a different, I mean, I'm getting really, maybe it's just a different dimension than ours. I'm, but I'm trying to tell you, Jesus tells us there is a spirit realm in which there are angels, messengers from God, different beings that God created. How many beings are uncreated? How many beings are uncreated? One, right? He's three persons, one essence. He's three persons. They're different persons, but he's one being, and he has existed forever. Nobody made him. Nobody created him. But everything else that exists, everything, was created by this one uncreated being. So all the spirit beings, all the physical beings like us, we, we have been created by this one uncreated being. But there is a spirit realm, a different realm than the one we live in, and God created it. In the future, there will be a resurrection of God's people to eternal embodied life. Jesus makes that clear. There will be a resurrection. Number three, in God's kingdom to come, marriage as we know it today will not be a part of it. And some of you are saying, oh, and some of you are saying, yay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're all saying, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't, all I know is what Jesus said, right? There will not, we won't be married to each other as we are in this realm, we will not be married to each other in the kingdom uh, in the kingdom to come. And here's the fourth thing that Jesus says. God's word, the Bible, our scriptures confirms all of that. And God's power is what's going to make that happen. God's word confirms that God's power will enable it to be. Now, here are my two thoughts on this that spring from the nature of God. I'm talking about this whole issue that the Sadducees brought up. And so this is, these are just Jimmy's thoughts, so take them just as that, okay? Here's the first one that I want to suggest to you. The basic pleasures of God's kingdom will transcend the greatest pleasures now. And I want to tell you that I, I think I overspoke in that statement. This morning when I was going over my notes, I said, God, that, that statement's too much. The basic pleasures of God's kingdom will transcend the greatest pleasures now. I'm not sure that's true. 
I mean, so many of our wonderful pleasures today, I think, will be a part of his kingdom to come. And, and, and so I, I, I think I overspoke when I said the basic pleasures uh, of, our, of, of God's kingdom to come will transcend our greatest pleasure now. I'm not sure that's true. But I will say this. I, I really do believe that the, the greatest pleasure of God's kingdom to come will transcend our greatest pleasure now. Y'all, y'all understand what I'm trying to say? I think I overspoke when I said the basic pleasures. But the greatest treasure of God's kingdom to come, or pleasure of God's kingdom to come, will transcend our greatest pleasure now. And I would even point to, to Jesus where, and maybe this, maybe this makes my first case, right, where he says of John, you know, John is the greatest, John the Baptist is the greatest of all men who's ever lived. But in the kingdom to come, he's the least, right? So, you know, maybe, maybe my first statement is true. But, but anyway, I, I suggest that to you. So if you're sitting there thinking, Oh, man, I'm really going to miss this in the kingdom to come. I want you to know, God's, whatever God's got planned for us in his kingdom to come, without sin, without brokenness, it's going to transcend this world. And here's the second statement that I want to suggest to you just to consider, is God will not deprive you of any meaningful relationship, experience, or need in his kingdom to come. Some of us might think, well, man, you know, the kingdom to come is not going to be all that great because I won't be, I won't be married to so-and-so or I won't be married at all. And man, I just, I, I love marriage. So here's what I want to say to you. Whatever the kingdom has relationship, whatever God has in store for us relationship in the kingdom to come, he, he's not going to withhold from us you know, anything meaningful relationally or experience or need in his kingdom, he's not going to withhold those things from us. And I know that because he says things like this. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our heavenly father give to us good things and give to us the Holy Spirit in another place, Jesus says, right? So he, he's, you know, do not worry about what God has in store for us. Because it's going to be more wonderful than we can ever even imagine. And that brings us to the third exchange. And though I hate to call this one a trap, because it's not a trap as we read it. You'll see it's not a trap. Maybe, maybe the scribe's intent was going to be to trap Jesus at the beginning. Maybe that was, I think that would, I think that'd be fair to say he was probably hoping to trap Jesus. But that's not what happened, and that's not what his intent was as the, as the, as we proceed through the text. Verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now this leader shows up, and, and I'm going to suggest that he's showing up to ask this question. He, he may have just thought of it on the spot, but I'm going to suggest he's showing up to ask this question. But as he listens to Jesus in these two exchanges, he says, wow, this guy has really answered well, and I don't think he means by that that Jesus got out of a tight spot easily. I don't think that's what we, I don't think that's what he's in awe of. I, I think he is in awe, or, or Jesus, maybe not in awe, but Jesus' answers resonated with him. So he asked his question, which is the greatest commandment? And, and listen to this. I don't think he's asking the question now because uh, he's not asking the question because he doesn't know. He knows, okay? But I don't think he's, I don't think he's answering, asking it because he doesn't think Jesus knows. I think he's asking it because he wants to hear Jesus say what Jesus is going to say. 
So in verse 29, Jesus answers, The most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one being. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater, there is no other command greater than these. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has been asked this question. He's been asked it before, but he answers it exactly the same way. There's only one God. Yahweh is him. There's only one God, and we're to love him with all of our being. That's the greatest commandment. And we're to love our neighbor. That's the second greatest And you'll remember on the other occasion, or on another occasion, Jesus defines neighbor as anyone who's in need. So to love your neighbor is to love anyone around you who has a need. Okay? Also remember that to love is to value, to treasure. Love is action, not feeling. So that's what Jesus is saying. Love God, value God above everything else, treasure God above everything else. And, 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 and love is action. It's not just a feeling, uh, uh, those warm, fuzzy feelings towards God. No, love is action. It's more than just the feelings. So here's why I know the scribe already knew the answer, because listen to what he says in return to Jesus, verse 32. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that God is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what he says. is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Man, I love that. That man's telling Jesus, you're right, but he's also telling Jesus something else about him, that he gets it in his heart. That loving God is not about these ritual things that we do. Loving God is different than that. Loving God has to do with loving him with all of my being, not just following these ceremonial laws. Because remember, the Jews thought loving God was just about getting circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the dietary laws. So many of them, that was that was equated with love, and he's saying, no, no, love is from our hearts. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him anymore or any longer. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate. Do you think in that moment, I mean, so these two men are talking and everybody's listening and he's asking the greatest commandment and Jesus answers the greatest commandment. He says, you're right. And listen, to love God doesn't mean just keeping all the ritual laws. And Jesus says, man, you are not far from my kingdom. And, and, and this is, Jimmy, I wonder, do you think it was just a hush all over the crowd? I mean, everybody's quiet. I, I think that's what happened. And it was just, everybody's quiet and, and the crowds disperse at that point. So I have two thoughts of what this exchange means to you and me. So again, again, much of much of interpretation is is or much of exegesis is is seeing what it says and then trying to apply it. This is my attempt to apply it to us this morning. So here are my two thoughts seeking to apply it. The first one is this. You misunderstand what it means to love God if your focus becomes keeping the rules rather than knowing and loving Father God. If your focus is rule keeping 
then, then you miss what it means to know and to love Father God. Now, it's already been alluded to once this morning, but this was Michael, this was Michael Lane's message from two weeks ago. Do you love the Father, or have you substituted loving rules for loving Him? I want to remind you of an illustration that Michael gave us last couple weeks ago that just, I mean, it just so spoke to my heart. It was so good. Remember, he told us God's laws, God's rules, they're like a tutor that a father hires for his son. He's going away on a long business trip, and so he hires this tutor to come in. This is Michael's illustration, if I got it right. He hires this tutor to come in, and the tutor's job is to help the boy, while the daddy's gone, to help the boy know what his dad is like, know what his dad loves, know what his father appreciates, understand his father. That's the tutor's role. But when daddy gets home, he doesn't need to tutor anymore because he's got daddy. Daddy's with him. And so he gets to hang out with daddy and learn from daddy. And, 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 and this is what the scripture teaches us, that the laws of God were like a tutor to tell us what God is like, what his heart is like, what his thoughts are like. But now, now he's put, he, the dad is with us. His spirit, remember he's one being, but he's three distinct persons. And one of those persons now dwells within us. And he walks with us. And he talks with us. And he teaches us because daddy is with us. And, and so we, we, he's not going to teach us to go against the rules that tutor taught us. But you know, if he, but the, the tutor taught us a lot of things that we don't have to do anymore because daddy's with us. And if we keep going back to the rules rather than to dad, then, then we, we misunderstand what it means to love Father God. And the second thing that, that I think comes out of this exchange with the scribe was this. You misunderstand what it means to love God and to love Jesus if you view God as your ticket to heaven and not your treasure. You know, all too often when we're talking about Jesus to other people, we we present him as a ticket to get into God's future kingdom, to get into heaven, right? That's how we're presenting him. Here's how you get your ticket punched into heaven. And please, please hear me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. And I understand that Jesus is the way by which we have a relationship with God that leads to eternal life. But you know what? We do a disservice to God if we don't present Jesus, His Spirit, the Father, as the treasure. That's what we need to be presenting to people. God is the treasure. He's the treasure. It's what eternal life is all about. Remember, remember, I don't remember if it's John. I think it's John. He says, and this is eternal life that you may know the Son and the Father. I mean, this is what... This is what our following Jesus is all about because he is our treasure. It's about loving him and doing life with him forever. It's about being with him. It's about being with him. It's about walking with him in the cool of the the evening. Do you realize that one day we will get to walk with Jesus in the cool of the evening 
I mean, we'll get to walk with him like we walk now and see now and touch now and feel now. One day we will walk with God in the same way that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. Exactly what that was like, I don't know, but, but literally, literally we'll get to walk with God. If we don't get this, then I think we're in danger of, of just missing something huge. Jesus is not just the way to eternal life. Jesus is the treasure. He is what we want. He, a relationship with him forever. That is what's of ultimate value. So here's my closing question. Has the reality of the treasure that is being and living with God forever, has it taken root in your heart? Has the treasure of being and living with God forever taken root in your heart? Has the truth that God is love and that he loves you and wants to be with, he wants you to be with him and love him and be loved by him forever, has it overwhelmed your soul? Or maybe like Michael said two weeks ago, has it overwhelmed your soul in the past and somewhere you've traded it for something else? God is inviting us this morning to receive his gift of himself, to love him, because he already loves us. Remember, if you love him, it's only because he first loved you. It's only because he started this thing. Open your heart to him. What is your I will statement for you today? You know, all of my kids are here, and I don't know even know if they know this, but I've been ending on Sunday mornings, and some of you are guests. I did have seen some guests as I've looked out. I end every Sunday morning by asking us, what is the, I will respond this way, God. I will do this in light of what you've prompted me with this morning, what you've touched my heart with. I will do this. And, and I've been asking everybody to walk out of here every Sunday morning with, a, with an I will statement. I will this because of what you've said this morning. And maybe your I will statement comes. Remember, we've had three, we've had three snares that they've put before Jesus, if you would. One is the thing about the taxation. You know, I will, what we, do you need to do something in response to that? Or the second one was about the marriage and about the future kingdom and all. You need to do something about that. And this third one is about loving God. Here, here's the, and I've had all week to think about this because You know, I've been meditating on it all week, but here's my I will for this morning. Here's what I want to be my I will. God, I will treasure you above Caesar, above country. God, I will treasure you above myself and my will. God, I will treasure you above ministry. God, I will treasure you above mere religion. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.